Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Taiwan is a country? Is it? Okay, let's start again. Taiwan is a territory that traditionally has way less people traveling to it than should probably be doing so. Sitting off the east coast of China, there are a few spots Sitting off the east coast of China, there are a few spots hotter geopolitically than Taiwan. But what's there? Are the people the same as those from mainland China? What's the terrain like? Is it safe? Friendly? How's the food? Well, you can say yes to all of those things. But today, we're not only going to touch on Taiwan as a travel destination for the second time on the show, but focus on cycling its east coast. So pour yourself a cup of oolong tea, steam some dumplings, and let's dream of what was once known as Formosa. So this is Scott Coates in Bangkok, and who's with me today? Hey, it's Trevor Ranges again. I feel like deja vu. I feel like we just did this. Did we just do this? I, we might have done two episodes today. Hey, it's always good to hear your voice, though. I'm, I'm glad to be back again. Likewise, I think we may have done two uh, episodes. I see you made a, a note. Let's call it an island because, yeah, we're not going to get deep into the weeds on politics here, but we'll probably re respond to Taiwan as an island. Um, I was recently in Taiwan. I went with my father and my wife in April 2023. We were there for 10 nights and we were looking for somewhere that none of us had been. And we'd been to most immediate spots. You know, within four or five hours, we realized we'd never been to Taiwan, has an interesting history. The more I asked around, more and more people said, wow, this place, you know, it's got great geography, great food, you got to go. So I was, uh, yeah, really stoked to go. And now we are going to chat with Simon today, who I was put in touch with, who gave me some travel advice because he runs bike trips for Grasshopper and Adam and the team over there are our friends. How about you? Uh, what are your impressions of Taiwan, Trevor? Um, yeah, I like the island thing. It's an island. Uh, we had a guest on uh, talking about Taiwan before, and I was really interested to speak with him about the surf. And he sort of was like, Ooh, let's withhold that a little bit because they're kind of uncrowded secret spots. Um, but you know, growing up, uh, I never thought of Taiwan as a surf place. Uh, I, you know, I've always been interested in world affairs as an American. Um, I've always been conscious of uh, China and their history and the origin of, of Taiwan. I don't know a lot of the history of the island as Formosa or what it was called before that, or, you know, some of the, from the earlier history, which I think could be really interesting. Um, but, you know, as an adult and living in Asia, I've had a number of Taiwanese friends, uh, quite a few, actually. I, I have friends who have lived or currently live in Taiwan as expats from uh, all sorts of different countries. Um, and, you know, I've always been interested to travel there. I hear they have great food. Uh, you know, it's it's got great infrastructure, really friendly people, like beautiful scenery. Um, so I'm excited to, to hear what uh, Simon's going to tell us today. 
Yeah, you're hyping it big time. And we'll likely do an episode about my trip to Taiwan down the track, thinking about how I planned it, reality versus impressions. But today we're just going to really focus on Simon, who's been there, I think, for 20 years almost, and he's led tours for tons. But, you know, just before we get into that, we want to thank Sharon. Sharon is a patron. What is a patron, you say? Patrons are lovely people that enjoy this show so much. They click donate on our website or they go to patreon.com and search the show name and donate anything from a couple bucks a month upwards to help keep this going. And as a token of thanks, we give them something special every two weeks. So in between all of these regular episodes, they get photo galleries or a chat that Trevor and I have about something topical or a video and such. Yeah, Trevor? Yeah, I enjoy making the patron content. I'm glad that we have patrons who like to support us. And uh, it's fun to have those little uh, more candid conversations uh, with you that we share with our patrons and uh, the video clip that you sent them recently, which I haven't seen yet. So maybe I need to patronize the show as well. You need to become a patron. Okay, let's uh, chat with Simon. Simon Foster was born in London and grew up in rural Yorkshire. Family holidays first ignited his wanderlust and he started work as a tour leader in the Middle East in 1997. Subsequently, he was posted to India and then China, and now he lives in Chenggong, which I've probably said incorrectly, which is in Taiwan's beautiful Taitung country, with his wife Tot and their two daughters, along with a dog and a cat. He has combined his love of travel with his passion for writing, has contributed to over 20 guidebooks and countless magazine and online publications, including rough guides to Australia, China, Egypt, Europe, India, Philippines, Spain. That is a lot of different books. So he runs Bamboo Trails, his own travel company with his wife, as well as providing land operation and bike tours for Grasshopper Adventures. They've led all kinds of weird, wonderful adventures, including 70 plus people on a self-driving auto rickshaw across Rajasthan, which might not make it into this one, hosted film crews, putting together a show about street food. He also has a bakery, which he and his wife opened in COVID, called Bamboo Bakery, where they sell authentic English cake and bread. So Simon, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So the big question after that massive intro is, where are you now? Uh, I am exactly in the place that you pronounce pretty, pretty accurately, Chenggong. Okay. Uh, so, which is on the east coast of Taiwan, which uh, I can probably try and find for us on this map. Uh, but uh, so, uh, roughly sort of southeastern Taiwan, about an hour north of the city of Taidong, which is the biggest city in the region. Okay. But right by the, right by the Pacific uh so we yeah we get to feel the typhoons perfect well thanks for joining us from taiwan hey hey simon trevor here so i i got a google map open and i've asked you to help share with our guests uh so they can go to the show notes and, and follow along on the map with us when they listen um but let's back up a little bit uh where are you originally from uh prior to your life in asia and what did you do in in that life before uh i'm originally from london in the uk uh, I have some of that in the, in, in the intro, but I uh, lived in London until I was nine or ten. Then our family moved to Yorkshire. Uh, they sent me away in Derbyshire in the middle of the country. And so by the time I left school, I was, I guess, pretty independent. And having done a bit of travel, I was keen to get off and see them. So I bought myself around the world ticket and uh, went, to, went to see what there was. Uh, and then when I got back, 
I guess I, I, I still, I tried lots of different kinds of work, but none of them really stuck until my sister saw a job advertised for an expedition leader in Africa. And she thought I might be good at that, so I applied, and that sort of set me on the course that's led me, led me here. Perfect. So when did you first settle down to live in Taiwan? Uh, in 2003. So uh, I worked in Egypt for a couple of years as a tour leader, and that's where I wrote the first guidebook as well. Right. India, China. And then having been in China for a couple of years, I, I, I learned some Chinese, and I was interested in the culture, but wanted to sort of maybe experience a, a slightly more liberal version of Chinese culture. I'd heard really good things about Taiwan. Uh, so in 2003, we came, which was you know, the, the tail end of SARS. So we've just gone through COVID. I guess one of the reasons that Taiwan fared well in, during COVID was because of what happened in SARS. But when we in 2003, everyone's still wearing masks and uh, frantically cleaning doorknobs mm -hmm. and and it was uh, it was uh, then it's at that time it seemed very strange but if you fast forward 20 years it, it made quite a lot of sense so you say that you settled there because it was you were interested in chinese culture and that was maybe a more interesting way to to experience it for you um, maybe if you could give our listeners some broad strokes overview of taiwan uh what what that what that place is or means or what was special to to you I mean, I, I don't know what before you came what, what you'd heard about Taiwan, but in my mind, uh, there was made in Taiwan, made in Taiwan, and there was uh, a problematic relationship with a uh, sort of big brotherly neighbour. But I probably didn't know a whole lot more than that. Uh, you know, knew where it was on the map, uh, but I heard really good things both from Chinese people and, and Taiwanese people, and that well, that there was good cycling. Uh, really nice beaches, and some of it almost sounded too good to be true, I suppose. And having just completed a load of guidebooks, we were at a loose end, weren't quite sure what to do with ourselves, uh, and so thought we'd uh, come and give give Taiwan a try. Initially, we taught English for the first year we were here, and and uh, just wanted. Well, I think we thought we were just coming for a year or two, but then when we arrived, quite quickly, one saw that everything that we'd heard was was true, and two saw that. There weren't many people or many foreign companies operating cycle cycling tours here. And there was maybe an opportunity there. Uh, and, and the more we travelled around the island, I guess, you know, as well as the things that you might think of uh, for Taipei, say, there's vibrant 24-hour city culture. There's a highly developed infrastructure, which only, has only got more developed the longer we've lived here. Uh, Asia's freest press. But there's also cultural influences that I might not have known about. So as well as sort of the obvious Chinese one, you know, the Japanese were in power here for 50 years. So there's quite a lot of Japanese influence. And these days, a lot of the younger generation aspire towards Korea more than more than sort of China. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a lot of Korean influence. And then what most people I certainly didn't know about is the indigenous uh, Pacific culture. So, you know, these islands were set, settled uh, three, three or 4,000 years ago uh, by indigenous peoples from well, Austronesian, they'd, they'd call them. Uh, so I didn't know anything about that, and and that was a, a bit of a shock because uh, you know at points it felt like uh, you were in Tonga, not 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 <laughs> Taiwan. And I also you know wouldn't have known that this this highly developed island where everything was made is actually sixty percent forested. Oh wow! Uh, so if you drive uh, Taipei to Gaoshan on the west coast, you're going to see you know lots of people 
lots of development but on the east coast and in the central mountains it's all forest mountains barely barely any people and the world's deepest marble core lots of hot springs and then kind of endless opportunities for outdoor stuff hot springs surfing yeah. cycling uh water rafting and then and then to really good food and people that is a great broad strokes uh, intro to the country. I'm going to keep calling it a country look. So, um, Yeah, no, well, I'm with you. So, yeah. Perfect. We'll call it country. Well, for this episode, we're going to focus kind of, you know, the majority of it anyway on traveling the East Coast by bicycle. But also, I think it's a good place for hiking, family travel, et cetera. So, Simon, in a nutshell, what makes Taiwan's East Coast so unique and worth visiting? I guess stunning sea scenery would probably be very high up on a lot of people's lists. Uh, the outdoors possibilities, and you know, I think during COVID, people really started to realise that more as well as they explored their own country. The hot springs, the unique culture that you know you're not going to find anywhere else really. The friendly people. Uh, I just said the, the the seafood as well, but actually, uh, just the, the probably the diversity. Okay. Um, okay, all right. I'm really interested. You know, we've had a guest on to talk about Taiwan before, and like as a waterman, I love to surf, kayak, swim. I know that maybe the the temperatures there, maybe in the summer it gets a bit warmer, um, but I'm not averse to a wetsuit if if it's necessary to get in. Um, but first of all, like maybe a little bit of logistics. Like it's quite a long distance. Is it possible to like rent a SUV or something? Is that the best way to to explore? You mean to the best way to get around the island? Yeah, if you're going down the east coast, of course you can do it. Like we can talk about bike tours as well, and and hopefully you have like a support van if it's a really long uh, trip. But generally speaking, like what would be the best way to to visit like some attractions along the east coast? Is there a train? Is there any sort of good public transport? Uh, I mean, there's lots. Of, it's a it's a reasonably you know it's a, a couple of hundred kilometers from from one sort of from the top of the east coast uh, uh, or the, the the region that we're talking about, say Hualien. Uh, down to the south but there's a good train uh, good train system which runs through the rift valley so there's no there's no train on the coast but the rift valley which uh, divides the coastal mountain range from the central mountain range the central mountains is the big mountains you know go up to four thousand meters the coastal mount- mountains about two two and a half thousand meters and in between them there's a volcanic rift valley uh, and so that's flat in the middle. So there's a train line that runs up through that. And then, yeah, it's fairly straightforward to to rent a vehicle. Um, and you can rent that in one place and drop it off in another. So, you know, the, the typical entry and exit points for the region would be Hualien in the north and Taidong in the south. Uh, so you could pick up and drop off, whether you're talking about a, a vehicle or a bicycle for that matter, at one end and drop it off at the other um, and then on a more localized scale, you know, obviously you can walk uh, certain places. I mean, people people walk around the island and the region as a walk, as a kind of rite of passage here. Um, but but you'd also then you can white water. There's a 24 kilometer section you can white water raft, for example. So there's lo- lots of different ways to to get around. Wow, incredible! There sounds like there's about everything you'd want to do outdoors is available in eastern Taiwan. So look, Simon, this question is a a bad one because you can always spend more time somewhere and it just depends how much time you have to how deep you can dive. But someone's thinking, look, I want to go to the east coast of Taiwan. Like what kind of time window should they be giving themselves to to really see and soak it in? 
Uh, well, you know, I've been here nine years and I haven't seen it all, mm-hmm. but that's a good no. Um, um, I, I'd say uh, it's a, you know it's it's not a huge region and it is uh, pretty well connected, so you can get a, a reasonable overview three or four days. A week would allow you to do a bit more, and then a couple of weeks would allow you to go off and do a multi-day hike or ride or, or go out to one of the out, outlying islands or something okay. uh, as, as well. Let's start from the top then. You're in the city where you recommended most people start. Um, if you're headed south south from there, like uh, if you're talking about cycling, maybe, is it just like great roads right from, from go or you got to get out of the city a bit? Uh, what's it look like heading south from uh, from your home base? Uh, well, so yeah, we're in Chengong, which is halfway down the coast. So, but if if I was going to start a cycling tour, I'd probably start it in, up in Hualien. So that's uh, say a hundred kilometers north of here, uh, and that's a you know the, one of the two biggest cities in the region, hundred thousand people, uh, quite quite heavily indigenous population. So a bigger proportion of the people who live there are from the indigenous tribes than in other areas. That means you get. Uh, sort of more indigenous food and, and it, so it's definitely worth spending a day or two there kind of soaking things and soaking things up and also maybe preparing your trip a little bit and uh, in Hualien you're only half an hour from Turoko Gorge uh, by car or you know a, a couple of hours ride and so it definitely be we start all of our cycling trips in Turoko Gorge uh, just because it's a mind-blowing mind blowing kind of way to start and it also if you start there it allows you to control what time you're riding through the gorge because it's it's uh, very popular as well as being very beautiful. So if you start first thing in the morning, kind of 7, 7 a.m., you can have the whole place to yourself for uh, the first hour or two that you ride. And then passing down through through Hualien uh, and into Oko, you'd be on a narrow road that wouldn't have much traffic at the very beginning. But then once you got out of the gorge, if you planned your route, well and carefully you could go straight onto some small road but actually even the bigger roads there's, there's two main roads that run through the region uh that's highway 9 and highway 11 so highway 9 runs through the rift valley and highway 11 runs along the coast and a lot of people just cycle on those they've got scooter lanes for the most part which cyclists can also use uh so quite easy to uh adapt to once you've got used to being on the right side of the road if that's uh, if that's not what you're used to but then our favorite roads would all be the much smaller roads that connect some of these uh, bigger roads and that's where uh, you get the most beautiful scenery you're going to get the least traffic and you probably got the highest chance of spotting wildlife as well cool so you're starting in Taroko heading south and you're kind of taking back roads into the uh, the valley and so forth so what are, what are the roads actually like like what's the quality of these roads that you'll be cycling uh, for the most part, it's really good. I mean, there are some tracks around, but essentially the main roads are, are well maintained. And then even uh, well, like the road through Taroko, I don't know if you know anything about the history of that, but it, 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 that was uh, that's a mission just to keep it open all the time mm-hmm. because it's uh, you know you're in a, a seismically active zone in a in a deep gorge. And so there are regular regular closures of, of that road, but they always, you know, it's always open again very quickly. And then once, and the main road's the same, but some of our favourite roads would be the roads that link the Rift Valley uh, with the coast and go across the coastal mountain range. Okay. And those roads are, are you know, single track or sometimes uh, uh, two-way, but you barely see any traffic on them and yet for the most part they're really well maintained to the point where you end up feeling sometimes 
that it was only done for you or only done for mm. cyclists because you really don't see a lot of traffic. You're more likely to see some some of the, some of our favourite roads. You're probably more likely to see monkeys than you are other cars, uh, and yet they maintain them. There aren't potholes. There are sometimes roadwork sections, but mm-hmm. but, but um, they tend to do the, the roadworks all get done at the end of the typhoon season, so kind of November onwards, okay. uh, and they do it quickly so that it's ready again for the for, for the next year. Okay, so as you're headed south, uh, since we're doing the East Coast, how often are you seeing the coast, and uh, what's the first maybe destination? headed south where you'd be able to do some sort of coastal activities. I like the idea that like you could do this gorge maybe as a day trip from Hualien and then uh, and then rent a car and head south or something. Yeah, no you could do you could do that. And I mean, you know, the other thing is with the with the advent of e-bikes and e-bikes are quite oh, yeah. easy to rent here. So actually even for non-cyclists or people who don't see themselves as as cyclists uh, an e-bike can actually make a great way to experience, let's say, Taroko Gorge, uh, slightly faster pace than walking and not having to rely on public transport or anything. But then if you were then moving south, I mean, uh, there'd, there'd be lots of different ways that you could go. And essentially, as I said, there's two main roads, one down the coast, one down the Rift Valley. A lot of people would choose to do a loop, and so between Huali so they might go down the coast and back up the Rift Valley or the other way around. But let's just say, for, for, for argument's sake, that we were going to go down the coast, then probably, I mean, you'd, you'd see lots of beautiful viewpoints heading south of, of Hualien. Probably the first really significant one or, or really beautiful one that I'd be stopping at is a place called Shitty Ping, uh, which is spelled S-H-I-T, so like a bad word, I-P-I-N-G. Uh, and that's uh, got wave cut platforms and questers. It's good for diving and snorkeling. Hmm. And it's just uh, amazing ocean vistas. You can see that it's got a fishing harbour with really good seafood. And then you can see the whole way up, you know, if it's clear, you can see the whole way up the coast for, I don't know, 50, 50 kilometres or something. So that's definitely a worthwhile uh, stop. And there's also some pretty pretty nice uh, B&Bs. Right, right, right on the ocean side there. So that'd probably probably be where I'd choose to, to make the first stop. Hmm. Before I went, I would have had no idea. And that's why I think this is an important question. What is the food like? Like when people are on a trip down the east coast of Taiwan, what, what are they eating? Is it just what we know as Chinese food or what can we expect? I guess, you know, in, in uh, uh, the, the restaurant options are constantly kind of getting bigger and expanding as, as it develops more as a, a destination uh, for, for people to want to come and see from outside. More and more restaurants and things are opening up. Uh, conventionally, if you're on the coast, you'd be eating seafood. And if you're in the Rift Valley, you'd be eating uh, sort of uh, pork or beef or chicken and, and veggies. But essentially, on, on, on the coast, there's lots of really good, super fresh seafood and because of the Japanese influence, you're going to find a lot of sashimi at very reasonable prices. And then the town where we live, Chengong, is famous for mahi-mahi. Mm-hmm. So lots of mahi-mahi here. And then uh, the Rift Valley more recently has, I mean, it's always been uh, sort of prime farming territory, but more recently it's developed as a, an organic farming hub. So there's lots of award-winning organic rice farms there and lots of tropical fruit orchards so as we cycle as you cycle through the rift valley you might go through uh, pomelo orchards and dragon fruit plantations and there'll be bread for pretty much every tropical fruit that you can that you can think of 
Uh, and so some of that gets used in the cooking, but, but uh, we certainly use it at rest stops. And then at the mm. end of the meal, you'd be sort of this tropical fruit as well. Sweet. Wow. Okay. It's good. Thanks for taking us out to the coast there a bit. Uh, you know, it was interesting though. You said from up at the top that there was indigenous communities there. And, uh, I guess that do they populate a, a large portion of the East coast? And, uh, you know, I don't know much about these peoples. I guess it makes sense that like, you know, people from China came to Taiwan during that part of their history, but I never gave much thought to the people who'd lived there before. Like, uh, how distinctive is their culture? Pretty distinctive, actually. So, so um, as of three or four, there's some dispute about it. There are some Taiwanese anthropologists who believe that everyone set off from here, and so that Taiwan is the starting point of an Austronesian journey that went, went then went kind of south and southeast from here. I think most anthropologists agree that it's maybe the other way around, and that the, uh, people from further south, so throughout what they call Austronesia, but, but let's just say sort of uh, south and east in the Pacific from from Taiwan, ended up here, and that would have been three or four thousand years ago, and they'd have arrived by boat. And then each boat or sort of fleet of boats would have set up a village in a certain area. And, uh, and some of them remain in those same areas to this day. However, what for the most part, what happened was that uh, then uh, starting in around about the 7th century, when there were famines or persecution, big disasters happening in China, there were successive waves of uh, emigration from China. And when those people arrived, they quite often pushed the uh, people who were in the prime locations out of those locations. So a lot of the western coastal plains would have been settled by indigenous peoples originally. And they were then pushed into the sort of the hill hinterlands and started to be referred to as mountain people, which still sort of sticks or they don't like that to this day, and gradually got pushed more and more to the remote areas. So that would be the central mountain range, some of the outlying islands, and then the area of Taiwan where we live at the moment. So when we first came in 2003, there were nine recognized indigenous tribes. There are now 16. They have to apply to the UN to be sort of officially recognized as a tribe. And the argument sort of normally runs something along the lines of, even though you might be able to, you know, you, I can see, you can see my village from that village over there. Actually, our, our cultural um, uh, history is, is a little bit different. Our weaving is different. Our language is a little bit different. And we want to be identified as a, as a separate tribe. Mm. But then they, and, and they, so they live in some of the most remote places, but, but probably are also, uh, as, as in lots of countries, some of the uh, most underprivileged groups of people with bigger problems with, uh, I don't know, let's say uh, alcohol abuse or domestic abuse, mm -hmm. not put into positions of power in, in government. And, and in some ways, tourism's helped because it's helped preserve their culture, but it's also helped to provide some opportunities in, in, these, other, in these areas that otherwise uh, really we're just seeing lots of uh, young people leave for the cities. But, it, but it's a big part of living here. They were all converted to Christianity by... Uh, by missionaries and so every indigenous village that you go through in the Rift Valley along here you pretty quick uh, pretty, can pretty quickly tell that it's indigenous village because there'll be a church mm. and a basketball court yeah. the people look very different they eat different food and they've uh, they've probably got a slightly more relaxed attitude to life but they've also been the custodians of the land for a long time and so these days they're sort of environmentally savvy sustainable practices are, are being more recognized for what they are 
Look, I, I kind of hated to ask this question, but I, I think I've, I've got to. You know, we're recording this. It's uh, June 2023. It's a bit of an elephant in the room, but, you know, as someone living there, is there, do you think for the average Taiwanese person or person living in Taiwan, such as yourself, is there a looming, legit fear about, you know, invasion by China, or do you think it's been built up more than it should be? I, you know, I think it probably depends on who you talk to on what, on what day, but for, sure. for us as a family, yeah. I mean, when we came here in 2003, there was something of a threat. They, there was uh, one of the ruling parties, the, the current ruling party is called the DPP, which is Democratic Progressive Party. They were in power when we first came here, and uh, there were sort of talks of having referendums for independence. So there was a lot, a lot of saber rattling going on in 2003, four, around about that period. And then the government changed you got the, the nationalist party came in in 2008 and all of a sudden relations with china warmed and we started getting uh, mass uh, mainland chinese tourism which had economic benefits but not everybody liked every part of it necessarily and then dying when the current uh president who's, who sort of saw us through covid again is from dpp and so is more uh not about pro-independence but certainly mm -hmm. uh, that taiwan is its own country has been has been uh, operating as its own country for 70 years and because of that okay. uh, and then i guess Pelosi's visit uh in particular the uh, things certainly got ratcheted up and, and so we'd be more concerned about it than we were five years ago all the more so for having a house here and having family here mm -hmm. however I also think that the Western media, certainly for a penchant for the dramatic, and so when, if I talk to my family in the UK, or particularly if I talk to friends in the States, they'd, they'd quite often be having a more dramatic picture than it feels here. You know, sure. we, we might have spent the day at the beach, spent the day at the beach, uh, and some planes will have flown overhead that we won't have seen, and my friends will be saying, "Oh, did you see forty-three planes or whatever flew over you today?" That doesn't mean to say that the danger is not real. And, okay. and you know, if you look, at, if you look at Ukraine, I think uh, they didn't think that was going to happen, and it could happen here. But actually, uh, for most people here, it's not top of head, and they'd be as or more concerned by earthquakes and typhoons. And certainly for the short-term visitor, I think the risk is very low. Taiwan's incredibly safe, both in terms of crime, lots of other things, but but. Um, this may happen at some point in the future. It doesn't feel imminent, uh, but it's highly unlikely to affect you if you come here for uh, a couple of weeks or something. What okay, about, thanks what, for setting that straight. What about just, I mean, you say it's safe. Uh, how about just logistically getting around and everything? You know, I, I've been to China. China can be challenging. Um, Taiwan, obviously, is a different uh, country, we're calling it here. You know, if, if an average traveler shows up and be like, hey, I'm going to rent a car and go explore and ride bikes around, uh, is, it, is it easier than mainland China? How is it to get around and get things done on your own? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly say it is. I mean, that's not to say that it's not without its challenges. I, I lived in China for a couple of years, and uh, I'd say, the, well, one is just the logistics of China being a bigger country, poorer country, but, but also... Uh, with now quite good infrastructure in some areas, but certainly in rural areas, not as good an infrastructure. I'd, I'd say Taiwan is easier. As it, you know, you still have not a lot of people speak English in Taipei. You'll find people who speak English in some of the big cities, but those people who do speak English are certainly keen to practice it. And and if you find yourself in, in any trouble or difficulty, they, they will find the English speaker uh in the village to come and help you and and also you know these days everyone's got a cell phone and translate 
And so I would find, you know, when I'm writing guidebooks and wandering around Taipei, every now and then I might need to pull out a map or back in the days before cell phones, I might need to pull out a map and refer something. But before I've even thought about pulling out the map, there's someone there asking if they can help me. Um, so people, people are incredibly uh, friendly, helpful. And I think that overcomes any of the, or at least some of the cultural differences that there are. Well, look, you've shared a ton already, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface because I have another couple hours of questions for you, but we probably got to <laughs> be gracious and say thank you and let you go at some point, Simon. So how can people listening learn more about you and your wife, Tot, and what do you do in your various ventures and maybe dive a little deeper into some of the, the tours you have going? Uh, yeah, well, they could come out here on, on a tour. That would be lovely. We'd love to see them here. Uh, so... Uh, we run, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we run the uh, cycling trips with uh, the operators for Grasshopper Adventures bike tours here, uh, and that's uh, probably what we spend a lot of our time doing. And well, as you'll know, Grasshopper also operates in lots of other uh, destinations around Asia, so that's www.grasshopperadventures.com. Right. We then have, for, for non-cycling trips, we have our own company, which is uh, bamboo-trails.com. Okay. And then we do everything from sort of cooking uh, through to hiking, through to cultural tours, so lots of different things. I mean, as far as the guidebooks go, I'm the current author of the, of the Rough Guide to Taiwan, and so you can find that at roughguides.com. I don't think we talked about it, but most recently I've been, during COVID, uh, I became the editor of a local magazine here called Hello Taidong. Yeah. And so Taidong is T-A-I-T-U-N-G. And so if you were to just search online, Hello Taidong, uh, the top hit will be uh, something called issueissu.com, and you'd find all of the editions of the magazine there. You have a lot of irons in the fire is what we say, Simon. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's before you take the kids into account, right? Sure. So. Truly busy guy. So thank <laughs> you for putting all other things in your life on pause and taking time to share with us uh, today. Much appreciated. Not at all, not at all. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. All right. Hey, good follow-up on Taiwan. Uh, you know, sometimes it feels like we just scratched the surface and there's so much more to discuss. You know, it was tricky. I think it's a long coast and there's two different routes. There's kind of, you know, the bike way you could go and there's the, the coast way where you could stop and do some seaside activities. So it seems like uh, we might have to have them back on maybe and, and scratch, you know, just pick one of those areas and, and talk about it. Like the, the e-biking in Takoro Gorge or something, you know, or just biking around there in general looks pretty cool. Yeah, it's not a massive country, but it is kind of a big, small country. And having gone up the East Coast, even listening to him, I still couldn't wrap my head around it. It's kind of once you've been there, you feel like you have to be there to experience him. But what what kind of stood out for me is that there is a real varied experience on the East Coast. Uh, the roads are really good quality. There's a good variety of stuff from big mountain climbs to being in the gorge to riding along the coastline. And, and I also like the idea of the e-bikes. And just overall, I think that Taiwan is very adaptable to different styles of travelers, even on the same trip. Yeah, you know, and again, like, I guess it's just like that, that later question I asked him about, like, was it easier to get around and stuff? I just, you know, I have a number of Taiwanese friends and I know people who have lived there and just the impression... I get is just sort of like that it might be similar in many ways to to going to Japan where there's some language barriers but they have a efficiently run car rental system or something like that you know that when you encounter things you need to do there is a system that that you know makes some sort of sense and and someone will help you figure it out you know 
Yeah, absolutely. It is a very developed uh, place in that sense. And yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. So it was a surprisingly developed place, a modern place at the same time. Um, you know, great network of roads, but also I did see signs about indigenous cultures and stuff. So for me, it just, everything gets frustrating about all this is just that you end up thinking, well, how long do I need? Is this going to be long enough? And I don't think it's never long enough, really. So I would say, you know, pick your battle, pick what it is you really enjoy doing in the great outdoors and go do it in Taiwan sooner than later. Yeah, you know, good advice. Uh, I'm kind of jealous that you went recently. I passed through that airport uh, over the past decades many times, and you you can finally get some nice craft beer there in the airport, although (laughs) I'm always there in the middle of the night when they're all closed. But I've seen it. I've seen it (laughs) there, you know. So, uh, you know, one of these times I just got to get out of the airport and go explore a bit, I guess. And Taipei is a fascinating city. So, yeah, I I encourage everyone to to go poke along some of the the links that Simon shared with us. He's got lots going on. There's lots of stuff to learn about Taiwan and then hone in on where you want to go. So thanks for joining us for this episode. Become a patron. Help keep the chat going. Click donate on the page. And uh, Trevor, can you take us out? Yeah. Hey, thanks everybody for listening, especially our patrons for supporting the show, everybody else for tuning in. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks uh, with the interesting topic that I've just brainstormed. It's going to be a good one. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia? 